0: This is ACM ByteCast, a podcast series from the Association for Computing Machinery, the world's largest education and scientific computing society. We talk to researchers, practitioners, and innovators who are at the intersection of computing research and practice. They share their experiences, the lessons they've learned, and their own visions for the future of computing. I am your host, Brooke Kiffley. Our next guest is an innovator, futurist, and artist with an interesting love for space dinosaurs who believes in bringing crazy ideas and moonshot thinking to create future innovation. Pat Patarnutaporn is a technologist and researcher at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also known as MIT, where he explores the intersection of synthetic virtual humans and synthetic biology, specifically at the interface between biological and digital systems. He is currently a PhD candidate at the Fluid Interfaces Research Group at the MIT Media Lab, and a KPTG Fellow, where he works with his collaborators such as NASA, IBM, UCSB, Stanford, and Harvard, amongst many others, to examine the future of human-computer integration. His interdisciplinary research has been published and recognized worldwide, and in addition to scientific contributions, Pat's artistic projects have been featured at many museums and exhibits around the world. Pat believes in bringing crazy ideas and moonshot thinking to create future innovation. Pat, welcome to ByteCast. Thank you for having me. Hello. So I'd love to start off with a question that I ask most of my guests. Can you tell us a bit about your personal background and maybe a couple of key experiences or you know, inflection points, as I like to call them, within your personal and academic journey that have led you into the field of computing, but also your field of study today? Yeah, that's a great question. So as you have
1: mentioned, I'm a PhD student now at MIT Media Lab. And one of the reasons I'm here is that when I was in high school, and maybe we should go back a little bit further than that, I grew up really like dinosaur. Um, dinosaur was a, a source of inspiration for me. You know, like many people, I think dinosaur has been sort of the reason why I study science. Dinosaur is all, you know, extinct, but... They're very, very cool and, and, you know, have inspired many of us to think about, you know, what is out there, you know, what is in the past and what could be in the future. I grew up, you know, really liking dinosaur. And then I watched many science fiction as a kid, you know, many science fiction involve dinosaur like Jurassic Park or like, you know, there's this um, anime cartoon called Doraemon, which is about a robot cat that helped um, a child with different kind of tasks and, in, in that cartoon, the Darmon robot will bring different kind of gadget, like time machine, take a trip to the past and see dinosaur, and also other kind of gadget that help improve human life. And what was really interesting to me is that you know people often associate dinosaur with the past, but Dinosaur, to me, is also a representation of the future, you know, with new technological innovation, you know, bring back the dinosaur, but it could also be dangerous as well. So it's like a cautionary tale of how to usually uh, use technology for the positive application. So after that, I think that science fiction or doing something very cool with science technology would be something that I would love to do in the future. But I often think that it's only in the cartoon or in science fiction, until I watched the TED Talk of my current professor at MIT Media Lab, Professor Patty Mars. She showed in her, you know, one of the most famous TED Talk ever, that you can bring technology to the human body and create a real cyborg. And that to me was the moment that changed my life. I see that, wow, there are people that are actually doing really cool scientific work but also, you know, very fun and very futuristic, something that i only seen in science fiction until that point. And that's how I discovered the field of uh, human-computer interaction. And I think at that time, I was in the last year of high school, and I reached out to Patty, you know. From out of my Gmail, I wrote an email to, to Professor Patty Myers of MIT Media Lab. At that time, I did not know that MIT professors are, you know, the most uh, busiest people on earth. And I reached out to her, and, you know, she was so kind to to write me back, and you know, I sent her a DIY prototype that I made uh, in my high school based on the research that she presented in TED Talk in her TED Talk, and that's how we, you know, know each other, and yeah. After that, I, I stay in touch with Patty and then apply to her research lab and, and become part of her research group. And now I'm continuing that work on, you know, human-computer interaction, wearable technology, things that are very futuristic, but also grounded in, you know, real uh, scientific research and trying to see if we can, you know, really use the technology to improve human life. So, yeah, to summarize it, it's, you know, it started off as a scientific no it started off as a science fiction no no not not a scientific exploration at all it started off as a science fiction obsession a childhood inspiration cartoon and then that lead to real research at MIT. so that's sort of my my journey yeah
0: you know what what an amazing life experience i think uh, many of us in tech or at least i'll speak for myself uh, i was also very much interested in the field of science and technology primarily because of you know growing up, uh, watching science fiction and, you know, being fascinated by the potential of what could be. So it seems like that, passion and excitement ultimately led to a real life career. So, it's very exciting to see how that has ultimately manifested in the trajectory that you've chosen. One thing I want to learn a bit more about, you know, you seem to be a very hands-on individual. I've seen some of your creations. So, what ultimately led you to decide that a career in research or at least going down the path of graduate school was the right decision for you as opposed to maybe exploring some of your scientific passions as yeah. entrepreneur or as a maker. Why right. did you feel that you know graduate school was the right path for advancing your career? I think your your advisor, yeah. as you mentioned, motivated a lot of your interest with that TED yes. talk. Uh, so I'm sure that's a big piece. Um, but I'm curious if maybe there are other motivators uh, for your decision. Yeah.
1: Oh, yes. So my mentor definitely is my intellectual hero. It's one of the reasons that I pursue my uh, graduate school. But I think, you know, one thing that I really appreciate about doing research uh, here at MIT Media Lab is that we get to sort of imagine the future. I went doing my undergrad I explored you know uh, a startup career and think about you know what does it mean to you know be a, a researcher in and and creating a startup and then I realized that you need to focus on solving sort of immediate problem and and that's really cool and you know there are a lot of people doing that but for me you know I feel like my strength is to sort of be more imaginative and think in the longer term explore new possibility that haven't been um, uh, uh, explored before. And I think that is a lot of fun and a lot of um, uh, impact in that. I think one of the reasons that the Meetup is a really cool place is that we get to work in you know, it's a very interesting and emerging field. Sometimes we don't even have a, a name for that category. Like, you know, I think re- recently we start to start to call ourselves human AI interaction researcher, but, you know, that's really new compared to human computer interaction, right? So the field is evolving and, you know, we bring more and more discipline or more and more diverse background of people to, to work in our team and that sort of expand our thinking in terms of, you know, what that area should be like. And, um, you know, in the media, we always say that we connect art, science, design, engineering together, and that usually not just lead to new answer, but also new question, question that we never asked before. And for, for me, that's really exciting that when, you know, the research, not just generating answer, but new question and new possibility for the future for us to think about.
0: Oh, wow. That's beautiful. I think the MIT Media Lab does a wonderful job of doing what you described, which is imagining the future. and blending a wide range of disciplines, whether it be architecture and computing, whether it be biology and physics. So I noticed that even in your area of research, it seems to draw on many domains, you know, from computing to biology, psychology, neuroscience. So how would you describe your area of study? You know, I think you described it as the intersection of Synthetic Virtual Humans and, and Synthetic Biology. As someone who may be new to the field or may not have you know, much of a background, could you describe uh, your area of study for me? Sure. So our group
1: is called Fluid Interface, and it's not about water or liquid. <laughs> it's fluid in the sense of seamless interface between human and machine. And Professor Paddy my professor who lead this group has been working in this area for quite some time now. And the idea of what fluid interfaces mean also evolve over time. It start off as thinking about how humans can, you know, actively receiving information from machines. So not just having passive machines that wait for us to sort of activate it, but thinking about recommendation or agent that can, you know, recommend information to us. That I think is the first wave of fluid interface creates seamless uh, an active information agent, and then that you know is, is interesting. Uh, Patty had launched many startup because of that, and it has you know changed the world. And then Patty was kind of a little bored with the idea that having this kind of active agent behind a computer screen, so it had led to the idea of maybe can we put this kind of you know information agent on the human body. You know, this area of research become what we n- now know as a wearable technology, right? Technology that are on the human body. People that, you know, have started like Google Glass or VR, AR Glasses, you know, were part of that sort of era at the Media Lab. They call themselves, I think, the borg where they think about wearable technology on the human body. And then, that right now is commercialized. You have smart watches. Many companies, you know, are working on that. And you know, recently we had like some uh, excitement about the metaverse or the virtual reality. So many of that was rooted in that second era of thinking about human machine integration. And now I think we are in the third wave of um, what we call a fluid interface, which is thinking about not just providing information on the human body, but provide what we call augmentation or enhanced capability because we are overwhelmed with data, right? We don't just want to wear more glasses or any auto-wearable devices just give us more data. We are already overwhelming with that. So how do we... We imagine new devices that not just throw information at us, but rather give us the ability that we want, like, you know, ability to pay attention, to think critically, to be more creative, going beyond information to augmentation is the the new area that we are focusing on. Uh, We call it human augmentation or rather human cognitive augmentation to be more uh, specific. So that is the, the, the newest or the third wave of fluid interface research. And that's, you know, the area that particularly working on right now.
0: There's a very clear need for, you know, the fluid interaction between, you know, machines, technology, and humans. And I'll get a bit more into uh, some questions around some of the limitations, but also future directions for, you know, what you described as wearables. But I'll start off, you know, I was reading a bit on some of your research. And I think one of the things that got me pretty excited was the clear practical applications of your work. I'm sure this is probably a result of the emphasis that, you know, MIT Media Lab has on, you know, practical applications of some of the research that folks are working on. You know, you've been involved in various projects that use humans and machines combined to, you know, improve learning, to improve well-being, to improve decision-making, to detect, you know, mental health issues. I'd love to start by learning about one of the projects, which I think is very interesting, which is human AI co-reasoning. What is it? You know, we often think about the success of AI or we optimize, you know, the performance of AI as an entity on its own. What is this idea of uh, human AI co-reasoning? That's a really cool
1: question. And I think that is one of the things that I think our group have been sort of exploring. I think in the past, we have been thinking a lot about how do we optimize AI on itself. Eric B. Johnson, who used to be at MIT, you know, has really coined, I think it's a really cool term called uh, the touring trap. Um, he said that, well, if, you know, touring is, is a really cool person and it has, you know, create this amazing field of AI, but he also had led the trap for how do we evaluate AI? And, and for him, it's about how do we uh, replicate human intelligence? Like if the AI can, you know, trick us into believing it's an AI, then it has shown intelligence. But that by itself is a trap in a way, because you are forcing people to think about, okay, how can you use AI to replicate um, human intelligence? What he argued that I think is really interesting and I think is a vision that our group is, is exploring now is um, thinking about how the AI could augment human capability rather than um, replicating human ability. So instead of making an AI that are like us, can we create a new kind of AI that are augmenting us or complement our intelligence? And when we talk about intelligence, we are not just talking about one way of intelligence, we think about creativity and you know rational thinking. Sometimes it's the opposite of one another, right? Sometimes you want to be more creative. Sometimes you want to be more logical. And in our group, we work on several kind of AI intervention that are augmenting our cognitive capability in different domain. The project that you mentioned, wearable reasoning or wearable or human AI co reasoning, really uh, explored the question of. How can we use AI to help us become more critical um, in, uh, in the way that we process information? You know, as you know, we're living in the era where we have many uh, misinformation, we have many fake news, we have a lot of information that are, are harmful to us. Can we use AI to augment our ability to process this information and teach us uh, critical thinking? So in that project specifically, we explore a way that we can integrate uh, an AI that is trained to pick up logical fallacy or picking up linguistic signal that can be the indicator of misinformation and put that in wearable device. So in the future, when people going around in their life or, or doing works, they would have this kind of AI integrated into a, a wearable, we call it a, like a second brain that help them process information so that AI can give you sort of maybe like a, a whisper uh, to you like, oh, this information that you encounter is lacking evidence to support it. Maybe you should think more or do some more research. Research before you believe in it, and this is, you know micro nudging we have shown to actually improve human critical thinking in terms of you know they people tend to be able to distinguish between uh, information that is lacking any support from evidence or from argument that have support, and we also further demonstrate that you know the AI would work best to help people reason when it can explain its decision like when it can explain to you why it make that decision or why it make that suggestion. So in that project we also show that explainability and um, trying to have an AI that explain itself is very important for uh, human AI core reasoning. So not just that it need to help human reason, it also need to be able to provide the reason for itself. and that's sort of the the area that we are working on. And right now we have expanded that to uh, multiple domain. We are, you know, exploring that in the form of wearable, in the form of virtual agent. Maybe the AI doesn't need to be in your glasses or in wearable device. It can maybe show up on the screen. And we're thinking about, you know, what kind of personality, what kind of appearance it should show up, should it show up. As, you know, a Socrates, like Socrates, the Greek philosopher, like come and challenge you, make you think more critically, or should it show up as maybe, you know, someone that you like or admire, you know, or the appearance <laughs> of AI has also been something that we sort of explore and thinking about if we were to have more AI in our daily life, what are these social dimension that we should explore, you know, the personality of AI, the appearance of AI, what kind of question it should ask you, right? This is the kind of interdisciplinary research that we are exploring, thinking beyond how do we optimize the AI, but how does the AI interacting with the human sort of uh, change the way that we uh, experience um, our life and the way that we will work in the future. So that's sort of um, the research we are working on.
0: Very exciting. I I really like this idea of nudging. Um, I've actually seen that employed across you know various domains, whether it be mm-hmm. you know nudging on my you know smartwatch, telling me to take a break or to stand up or to you know make sure I'm you know walking my number of steps for the day. Do you see? So, are the primary applications that you're pursuing now for uh, misinformation or fake news detection? Uh, do you see other application areas, whether it be in HR, in health, in you know? It seems like the applications are very wide here.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think one area that I'm particularly excited about is the idea of AI for education. You know, right now we have many powerful AI models and they are really uh, exciting and many more researchers are creating more and more um, uh, models, you know, large language model, you know, generative uh, image model. These are very cool uh, by itself. But thinking about how they can really improve um, the way that we learn is also really interesting. Professor Seymour Papert, who who is a legend at the Media Lab, said that we cannot think about thinking without thinking about thinking about something. It's a really uh, powerful (laughs) (laughs) uh, phrase to think about. But I think Going further, we should think about how do we think with the thinking machine? You know, when the AI are starting to have this kind of amazing capability of, you know, generating new information, can we use them to make, you know, learning, you know, not just about critical thinking, but learning in general uh, more exciting and more, um, more fun? You know, can we use AI to really personalize the content? to make the learning material be more individualized or, or, you know, targeting the interests of each individual or, you know, can use this AI to allow uh, children to be able to have, you know, uh, like an an expert opinion. Like, you know, uh, one of the projects that we work on on the area of AI-generated virtual human is thinking about can we use this AI to create, you know, virtual peers. Maybe, you know, if if a kid want to learn about physics, maybe they can have a virtual Einstein that, you know, provide them with, you know, state of the art research in a way that they can understand, or maybe if they don't like Einstein, maybe it could be a virtual superhero or any other character that is personalized and based on the student interest and with that right now there' are a lot of conversation about oh should we ban the language model or should we ban an AI because it can answer a question and you know children no longer need to write essay for me and I think in in the media lab in general, we're thinking about yeah, of course, new technology is going to come in and it's going to challenge the way that we think about learning. Like maybe in the future, kids no longer need to write essay because AI can already do that. But together, can we think about new education paradigm where children with the power of technology can do things that even the teacher today cannot imagine? Maybe with the power of AI, you know, virtual assistant or virtual learning assistant, children of the future maybe at the age of, I don't know, Five or ten years old would already achieve something that a PhD student at MIT, you know, twenty years or later can do. Can that accelerate the capability of, of of people to learn and make amazing things like maybe shouldn't of the future be able to cure cancer in middle school or something like that with the power of AI? So that I think is the is the exciting vision for the future. How do we empower um learning with the capability of AI? Yeah, I, yeah. Think,
0: I certainly love this much more optimistic view. I think there's been a mix of response from both the you know computing community or the ai community but also the general public and it seems that most people are very quick to suggest that banning the technology is the right thing to do and while i agree that policy and moderation is necessary i think uh, your viewpoint is certainly much more optimistic which is how can we think of education of the future or students of the future where Perhaps, you know, they're not spending their cognitive abilities on writing essays, but now they might be thinking about more critical world issues or thinking about how to solve some of the major problems that we're facing as a society. So it's very exciting to see that, you know, folks at the Media Lab are optimistic on how we can reinvent or think of a new paradigm for education um, using these, uh, you know, foundational models and technologies
1: yeah. One vision of the past, I guess, the, the philosophy of the past that I really appreciate is the, the the vision that was led by Manfred Klein and Nathan Klein. These two uh, people have coined the term cyborg. And it's in contrast to today's perspective that cyborg is about losing humanity and becoming more like a machine. In their original paper, uh, they say that the idea of cyborg is to use technology you know, as part of a a human body. And it's not about becoming more like a robot, it's about becoming more human than ever. So you can use technology to do the things that is mundane and repetitive and like a routine job so that human can, you know, be more free, free to think, to create, to explore and to feel. And the, the term cyborg was coined in the context of, you know, the early era of space exploration. And at that time, they're thinking that, you know, the space is so big, And, and we by, by ourselves, you know, the biological body can no longer go into the deep space, right? So we need to augment ourselves with machine. But I think that idea of using machine to make us more human than ever, you know, should apply into the way that we think about technology today. Well, like why why do we want to be like a, a robot? I think we should remain human, remain having our agency and, and freedom to explore things and use technology to sort of expand that capability. I think we take that we at the Media Lab, we we are the sort of the optimists. We try to, you know, not just see technology as black and white, but the way that we can really, you know, empower people with, with new technology. So if we take that perspective and imagine, you know, what, what learning could be like, the universe is so big, we have so many question that we are curious about, where we're from, you know, what is out there, learning should not be constrained by what we know, but what we don't know, right? If we can really empower, you know, children to play in the middle, we think a lot about lifelong kindergarten, right? That's a, a really awesome group at the lab that really explore the future of learning. We think a lot about playful learning and constructionism, the way that we can construct new knowledge with the power of AI. I think That would really enhance or uh, really accelerate the way that we learn and and think about a new challenge for for humankind.
0: Certainly. I think any technology has limitations or the advent of any any technology has any negative use cases. But I think if we are optimistic, the positive impact that technology can have far outweighs any negative impact. So it's very exciting to hear some of the the viewpoints that you have. I want to go back on the wearable reasoning project or device that you mentioned. You know, we're speaking or this is an audio conversation, so I, I can't physically see or you can't physically show me what this device looks like. But can you describe what, what this wearable device looks like?
1: Yeah, we have, you know, different iteration of this. But one of the most the recent iteration that we have is actually now exhibited at MIT Museum um, mm-hmm. in the AI exhibit. So if anyone uh, come to Boston or come to Massachusetts, I would encourage uh, uh, the audience to go and visit that. They have really cool... Um, And and they have not just our project, but many amazing projects from MIT that really highlight the evolution of AI throughout the history. And our project is sort of, you know, one of the recent uh, examples of what human AI interaction would look like.
0: Specifically manifest as a a screen, as a device that you wear, you know, like augment your vision. I'm curious to learn a bit more about what what the device actually looks like. Yeah, so there are different
1: ways that we can, you know, present an AI to a person. Um, in that project specifically, we focus on audio interface or voice interface. Um, particularly, I'm really interested in the way that the AI could become sort of the second inner voice, like when it whispered to us. Can it be sort of the the voice of reason or a second brain that you know provide us with second opinion? So in that project, is a is a glasses. With audio and microphone and the Bluetooth capabilities so it can connect with you know the the computational uh, power in the cloud. This is where you know the the, the AI exists and, and and process the information. And you know we try to you know make an, as I mentioned, make an explainable AI so it can you know not just provide feedback to the user like okay this is reasonable or this is not reasonable, but provide a meta analysis like why does the AI think that this is reasonable and see if that could improve human uh, decision-making. And we found that it was really effective in helping people discern uh, misinformation from honest information. Mm -hmm. So that's what the current wearable look like.
0: Very interesting. Yeah, I've seen a range of responses to wearable devices. I think in Mm -hmm. sort of the first era of wearables, we've actually seen many limitations that led to uh, unfortunately, the failure of many moonshot wearable technology, um, I think yeah. you described some with you know Google Glass and uh, now with the metaverse, you know there's usually high price. there's the physical inconvenience of the device. it's very uh, obstructive to you know your day-to-day activity. Right. it's heavy. Um, there's concerns around privacy and safety. Uh, so, right. When working on wearable devices, how do you think about some of these challenges? Is there a future to what wearable devices looks like to help address some of these, these concerns or pain points?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think it changed the social acceptance of wearable device. sort of changed and evolved over time as well. I think earlier people think that the glasses, you know, would be um, the best form factor to deliver the information to, to the person, right? That's why we have so many glasses in the beginning. And now it seems like the form factor that, seems to be more widely deployed is the glasses, right? I think one of the things that we think a lot about in terms of when we create new uh, devices is that, can we, you know, piggyback on things that people are already familiar with, right? Like, you know, these two devices are based on objects uh, that we have already encountered in our daily life, like the glasses or the watches, they had less computational capability in the past. Now we have new ability that we that we add to them, so i think I think the key to success for this wearable is to sort of think about ways that it can integrate seamlessly into our our daily life and you know of course we're going to see more evolution of that kind of technology in the future, but it seems that what people care a lot about is not just getting more information, as I mentioned, you know, more information doesn't lead to uh, productivity or improvement in terms of our ability to use that information immediately. We should think about how the technology really provide the value to the p- to the people. And our group have been sort of looking at the cognitive augmentation, but there are many other areas like, you know, sensing, can this device sense uh, information that we never uh, sensed before? Like, you know, right now, one of the trends for deploying wearable devices to use this kind of technology to do things that you know we used to do in hospital, like measuring uh, high quality heart rate and respiration and you know skin conductivity and arousal and other things, right? These used to be things that we do at hospital. Now they've become integrated into our small wearable that we wear. So I think there are many advantages that this technology will provide in the future. But thinking about what are the real values that You know, that they provide to human. I think it's really important, you know, not just taking for granted that having more information would be useful, thinking about what are the real values of having that information or what kind of augmentation can come about from that information. I think that's the important part.
0: So, to do that, do you find yourself speaking with potential users of the technology or do you have focus groups, studies that you conduct, maybe engagements with community? How, How do you better understand? Uh, yeah. Not just developing technology for the sake of developing technology, but for the purpose of, as you described, you know, providing value right. or utility to the kinds of people that you're developing the technology for. Right.
1: I think that's an important question. I think in the media lab we tend to be more imaginative. Sometimes we explore needs or um, challenges that you know are not a, a big issue today, but could be in the future. For example, you know, we have been working on you know many space. Uh, project projects related to augmenting human capability in space as we become what we call um, interplanetary uh, species when human can travel across different planet, you know, which is it become more uh, real than, than in the past, right? In the past, we, we tend to think of this as science fiction, but with, you know, the recent um, space race in, you know, the, the private uh, space uh, industry, we, we start to think that, you know, these will become more important in the future, especially if we're going to have longer space mission or deep space mission where we go, you know, into uh, a further planet. And, you know, with human space mission, people, you know, tend to think about like rocket ship and spacecraft, but I think one important area is also the space health. How do we use wearable to really allow people to have like healthy lifestyle or healthy life in, in space? I think that's a really huge and uh, important issue. So we have been working with um, NASA Trish, a specialized unit in NASA that supports the, the advancement of space health and uh, MIT Space Exploration Initiative, um, which is you know, an, an initiative from the Media Lab that really think about how do we humanize the space Exploration. How do we focus on the human aspect of space exploration? So we're working on um, wearable system, like you know, wearable app on the body, and wearable bioreactor that allow astronaut to be able to sort of sense new information from the human body and be able to provide uh, intervention on the astronaut suit itself. Because when you're in, in space, you don't have the ability to go to a hospital, right? There's no Harvard Medical School or MGH around. You need to think about mm-hmm. how what kind of medicine can you pack into wearable device or on the astronaut spacesuit so that if you're sick, you can have that healing process or that treatment right away. So that, you know, has been uh, an area that we work on. And that sort of work had led to a community, actually, uh, called Space Chi. We have been hosting a workshop for the last two years at ACM Chi, which is, you know, the, the largest conference in in, uh, in the area of human-computer interaction. We have been creating this sort of uh, spatial gathering for people that are working at the intersection of HCI human-computer interaction and space exploration. And in the past, you know, it's just NASA people. You know, we we talk to many people from NASA who say that, you know, in the past, it's just us thinking about this question of how do we augment or allow astronauts to live healthily in space or to be able to, you know, work effectively in space. But now many researchers are thinking about it Many designers, many artists even um, are thinking about this kind of challenge because space exploration has become more democratized and more and more people are thinking about how they want to define the next generation of human life in space. So that's, it's really exciting. Yeah.
0: ACM Bytecast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite platform. Very interesting. So it seems like your focus or your research motivations aren't even just thinking about solutions to existing problems, but it's also identifying new problems that have not yet been clearly voiced or clearly formulated. I really love the, the work that you described with, you know, wearables for health enhancement in space. Do you see this being applied for those who are on Earth? I I think even beyond applications in space, maybe there are seniors or folks who may be receiving in-home care. Are there applications even here on Earth for some of this technology?
1: Right, definitely. So many of these powerful advanced concepts, like the idea of cyborg, that has inspired early work on wearable technology, right? You know, the media people call themselves the Borg. Yeah, was in the context of space exploration. And I think space exploration has some kind of, you know, magic or some kind of powerful vision that really inspire new innovative ideas, right? If you're thinking about maybe a solution on Earth, there are more um, practical things or things that you can deploy with lower cost. But when you're thinking about space, it really open up your mind or the way that you think about the problem uh, in a new way. So that's why many of the uh, technology that we're using today, you know, from you know GPS or even like, you know, microwave that we're using in our kitchen. You know, these t- technology that we're taking for granted today, you know, will actually uh, develop in the context of space exploration. Right. So. As we think further into the future, sometime the research that we that we create uh, are for that sort of extreme use case, but eventually they will become more democratized and more accessible to auto group of people as well. But thinking about that right now may not make sense um, because as you as I mentioned, there are other more practical Solutions. solution, right? Yeah. So I think one of the goal of the media app is to sort of always look at the the new frontiers and searching for new possibility things that you know, make people question, like, why are you doing that? But then, you know, once it reached the the level of maturity that we would expect, it will have tremendous impact on human society. So I think that's our job, to be maybe less practical now, but more impactful in the future. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's always crazy until you actually achieve it. Um, So I think pushing the frontier of science is is, uh, certainly... um, uh, right. The return is certainly there. I understand one of your experiments actually recently uh, was launched to the ISS, the International Space yes. Station. Uh, can exactly. you tell me about that? That's actually uh,
1: pretty awesome. Yeah. As I mentioned, MIT Media Lab has a really cool unit called the Space Exploration Initiative that works across different groups in the Media Lab to explore. Our project in the Media Lab are always sort of crazy and out there and, and you know at the forefront. But many... Many of them are you know, targeting sort of Earth-based population or Earth-based user. The space exploration initiative really pushed the media up to the next level where we're thinking about how can we deploy some of the things that we think about on Earth in space. And the project that you mentioned is actually uh, uh, one of the projects that built on top of the you know, early work that I have done on, on wearable technology for astronauts In this project, we are looking at how do we create a biodigital system that allows us to control the growth of bacteria in space so that we can use these bacteria to do multiple things, help recycle material in space, help recycle uh, material in space, help us produce medicine and do other things. So we have been um, exploring how do we create this automated bioreactor that is digitally controlled, but allow us to sort of, um, um, understand and, and, and grow, you know, genetic engineer bacteria, um, in space for human benefit and, that has been a really fun project to work on and it was launched actually before New year to the International Space Station and this project is is, is a really fun collaboration among uh, many uh, group that come together to sort of explore this and now it's just returned from space to us we're gonna you know be busy analyzing the result in the next uh, a month also uh, and you know I think it's gonna really you know show new possibility on how we think about bio digital interface in the context of space exploration yeah.
0: Well that's very exciting. I'd love to hopefully learn more about or closely follow some of the results. I don't think many folks can say their experiments have been launched to the ISS so I think quite an accomplishment um and I'm sure the uh, results will be uh, equally interesting
1: yeah when you work on space mission it's always sort of it's always like uh, like you are in some kind of a science fiction or movie you think about okay you know what's going on you know what challenge you need to solve like i really love um the phrase from the the movie the Martian. right you need to science out of the solution you need to science your, your way out of the of the problem um i think that's really really true when you work on, on a space mission there's so many problems so many challenges that you need to face and when you fix them or when you solve them your mission you know get to go to space and yeah and, and we all ex- are ex- very excited about that yeah
0: very interesting. You know, we talked about a couple of different uh, interesting things that you've worked on. And, you know, your research has been published, you know, various journals, you know, fe- featured in various media outlets, you collaborate with uh, stakeholders in academia and industry with, you know, NASA, as you described. What is the impact that you hope your research will have on, you know, the future of human computer integration or human AI right. uh, interface?
1: I think of the impact of my work in three ways. So for the first level, I think of my work as, you know, showing a new kind of prototype or a new kind of artifacts, things that people would think, oh, why would you do that? Or things that people think that, oh, it would never work. We will make the first prototype. We'll make that first attempt to show that this can be done. Maybe it may not be the most effective prototype or may not be the the most practical things that you can use today, but it's the first step to show that is a possibility so that, you know, future research can improve and, and work on that. So that's the first level to show new prototype, new artifacts that really bring crazy ideas into something tangible. The second layer of, of impact, I think, is to, you know, to really Show an experiment to show that okay, the thing that we make have this kind of impact or this kind of improvement on human life. You can see some of this in you know the experiment we do on human AI interaction or on you know some of the space project. Um, we have you know real scientific experiment that we validate our work and we have shown that it you know have improved our human life and you know in terms of our decision, health, creativity, or, or whatever, to show uh, the experiment, I think is really, really cool. And then the third layer is to, you know, really deploy this in the wild to see if it really, you know, have impact on human life. Uh, I've done some, you know, project that was deployed during the COVID pandemic, you know, like, you know, the chatbot that helped people retrieve certain information or um, design of a project that, you know, look at how we can optimize the flow of people getting the vaccination. These kind of projects, you know, maybe less futuristic, but can be deployed and, you know, really uh, save human life. Like the chatbot project was used by, you know, over millions of, of, of user worldwide and you know the vaccination side that i you know co-design uh, with you know people uh, in, in my team you know have really accelerated the process of vaccination so we don't focus on just practical things but if we have a chance to really push that um, or do something in that area i think that's also really impactful so yeah, these are the three sort of way that I think of my of my contribution to, you know, the the research community and, and to the world basically, to offer a new kind of crazy prototype, you know, ask questions and experiment on things that we never thought of and finally deploy some of these ideas and, and solutions
0: into the real world. Yeah. Well, that's that's awesome. And you know, as I said before, it's only you know, crazy, or it only seems impossible until you do it. Um, And I think at the end of the day, I really always excited and fascinated by the strong emphasis on practicality on, you know, how does it improve human conditions? I think many technologists can be motivated purely by, you know, scientific pursuit, or just the happiness or satisfaction that, you know, comes with, uh, you know, pushing the frontier of science as we know it. But I think there's also another aspect, which is thinking about how can it be applied to improve society or human life as we know it. I really love your, you know, your perspective or your take on things. And I think one of the things that uh, I found quite interesting is that outside of, you know, your scientific pursuits, you also bring a very strong passion and love for art. Yes. And many of your work has actually been featured, I was surprised to see in museums and, you know, galleries yeah. around the world. And from what I observe, you know, as you describe, you also have, you know, this entrepreneurial spirit or this entrepreneurial drive. You, you know, you worked on projects before, you know, graduate school. You've been working on projects with the COVID chatbot, as you described. Um, you've co-founded various programs and initiatives. Can you tell me a bit more about these two passions, you know, your, your love yeah. for art and then also this this entrepreneurial drive? You know,
1: in the Media Lab, we have this uh, four area that, you know, we, we we often sort of describe the way that this thing connected. We call it the creativity cycle. And it's about how art can inspire science, how science can inspire engineering, engineering inspire design, and how, you know, new design will create, continue that cycle by inspiring new art, right? So that's one of the ways that we think about um how, you know, creativity happened is, when new disciplines are collide and, and connected with one another. So I, I was fortunate to work with many um, artists that I collaborate with to really, you know, uh, explore the implication or the new question that can come about in terms of, uh, you know, uh, artistic practice from my project. Because often when we work on really advanced technology, whether it's AI or space exploration, it's really uh, beautiful and you know, in terms of the, the aesthetic of it or in terms of the question that it brings about. And art, I think, is a way of asking questions and, and be imagining, uh, Im- imaginative and exploring sort of, you know, the hidden question to, to that. So many of my artistic projects have been exhibiting around the world and it has really opened my mind in terms of what this technology is really about. Sometimes it's about criticising the work and sometimes it's about opening up new way of being expressive So, Mm -hmm. um, for example, I've been working with a Thai artist, Kavita, on creating an AI clone of her to have a debate. So she can sort of be in the middle of two AI that is based on her own data, talking to one another and, and exploring, you know, what would she actually do when she externalized? you know, her mind into multiple AI that are debating on important issue. And that performance has been, you know, feature in, in several museums and, you know, has really, you know, not just, you know, it's not just that I enjoy working with her, but it really opened up my mind about new research possibility in HCI as well, right? So it's not just about making art, but how art really inspire new research. And, you know, it's not just artistic community. I also engage with, you know, startup community and industry, that's one of the strength of the media lab, right? That we get to have, like you know, uh, member companies, and you know they bring new perspective, new challenge for the industry to us, and we have the privilege to be more crazy and say to them that, oh, to your problem, we have these crazy ideas, and you know that is beneficial for for both of us, right? Because for for us, we get to see a new challenge, you know, insight on things that we never thought of and for uh, the member company they see new crazy possibility that they, they, maybe they never thought of so that's always fun as well to think about how the work that we do um can go into uh, multiple channel artistic output or industry output or yeah so I, I think for me my work is about as i said augmenting human capability and i want to be you know expressive and and, and use this work in in many ways. Um, one of my goals is to live an expressive life, to be able to express my idea and thinking in terms of research, you know, artistic project and, you know, solution for um, industry and startup and, you know, social impact. And yeah, I think that's the kind of fun um, research ecosystem that I've really enjoyed at the Media Lab.
0: Oh, that's awesome. And so it seems like science and these outside interests or pursuits are not independent or mutually exclusive. Rather, they actually help motivate some of, you know, your scientific pursuits and contributions. Absolutely. Awesome. One of the things that uh, I loved in your bio is this idea of, um, you know, moonshot thinking to, you know, create, a, a, you know, future innovation. Um, so as someone who actually, you know, believes this idea in, you know, crazy ideas and this idea of thinking about the future, how do you find you are best able to channel, you know, your creative or moonshot thinking Um, do you have a specific process? Do you have specific frameworks? Are there, do you like to go on walks? Do you think of these ideas when you're in the shower? Like what, where, where do you find you are able to be at your best when it comes to, you know, really thinking about these crazy quote unquote ideas?
1: I I think I say it many times, but I think that your question are very cool. And yeah, for me, I, I always think that innovation is never a straight path. You know, it's never like you walk into an innovation and it boom, and it's become a world-changing idea or, or things like that. It's always like um, it's like a, a walk in the forest. You go and you see that oh, beautiful tree and then maybe it makes you think of something and then you walk and then you see another tree or maybe you see a dinosaur in the forest. And it's always like an adventure. And yeah, if, if you look at the history of how powerful ideas come about, it's, it's never happened in the formal context or the context where people are like, okay, I'm going to make something. It's rather happening in the very unexpected environment or in a very unusual place. So for me, you know, one of the reasons that I, I love to work in this different domain, like, you know, artistic project and industry project and, you know, research project is that it really sort of, you know, make your mind flexible to think across different um, possibilities. And, um, yeah, so I think that's one of the, one of the things that I really appreciate about being in the media app is that I get to sort of be flexible and, and, and go into that different area. And the best, you know, you, you asked about what is the the best time to, to have that kind of crazy idea. Yeah. I think walking definitely can really help. It helps you be stimulated um, as you kind of walk through the, the environment. I, I love to walk in the park in the afternoon or in the morning to get sort of new ideas and um, listen to like music that kind of put you in the, in the flow state. Um, and and sometimes you know, showering in hot water also really helps, <laughs> um, it's it really helped sort of. Yeah, and, 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 and what I find interesting is that it will never come to the thing that you expect. It always sort of go in a different direction, but then at the end, if you figure out the connection, it will be something powerful and, and, and awesome at the end so yeah as i mentioned it's never a straight path it's always uh, it's never a straight path it's always um, a complex and malleable kind of thing that you need to sort of keep molding it and keep pushing it and keep thinking about it and then it will it will resolve in, in, into something interesting i think yeah.
0: that's awesome so there's something to be said about you know oftentimes we explore solutions to solve problems but sometimes we Think about how we can apply existing solutions to be, you know, applied to problems that we've probably never explored before. So, you know, right. you've, you've worked on some cool applications of, you know, wearables and machine learning for learning and well-being and decision making. So, do you often find that, you know, you find yourself identifying problems first and then thinking of ways where technology could be used to fix these problems or, you know, provide a solution to these problems? Or is it the other way around? Or maybe you think about these are the capabilities that we have today with large-scale language models or wearable devices. And then you think backwards or you reverse engineer and you say, these are the kinds of problems that now I can solve with this technology. What's the framework that usually drives more of your research or your new explorations?
1: For me, I think there's no, like, one formula. Sometimes you are inspired by the new um, advancement in, in technology and in AI, for example. Like, you know, new uh, models are always like, you know, fascinating to me. Um, and sometimes you have like a vision of like, oh, would it be cool if we have this kind of thing? And you know, what's this thing about it? Like what are the ingredients that do I need to put together in order to make that? Like is it, you know, new model that doesn't exist or is it a new data set that I need to go and search for? Yeah, so I think it it happened in 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 both ways. Sometimes you see something, some interesting ingredient, and you want to cook something awesome out of that. Mm-hmm, or sometimes mm-hmm. you think of a meal like that that you want to make, and then you think, okay, what are the ingredients that I need to go sort of to go find in order to to make that? So I think it happened in in many ways, um, and and sometimes it's about. Sometimes people criticize, you know, the 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 sort of the futuristic work that we do at the Media Lab, at like, oh, you're creating a solution in search of a problem, like you're not solving real problem. But sometimes that's what we need, right? We need to imagine new ways to live a life, and sometimes it's not about using technology to fix the existing problem, but rather to reimagine how do we recreate or or reimagine that whole scenario altogether and the lab have shown a a really good track record of how do we sort of reinventing that like for example um the early work on touchscreen um that you know i i think it's a very fun example to to think about like when the first touchscreen came out from the lab um, it was i think it was an architecture machine it was the precursor of the media lab but professor nico prante who was the director of the media lab, he said that he was heavily criticized for exploring the work of touchscreen and the first touchscreen that came out from the lab was criticized that, oh, human hand is so messy. If you touch the screen, you know, it's going to make the screen messy and dirty. No one going to ever use the touchscreen. Those are valid reasons, but the thing that we never imagined we could do with touchscreen, you know, outweighed that small issue. So I think sometimes we don't know what the future going to look like. So we should keep exploring and explore new possibility, not constrain ourselves in one way of thinking like, oh, I'm going to only solve problem or, oh, I'm going to just create things that doesn't exist. But you know, be flexible. Like sometimes work on things that are practical. Sometimes work on things that are imaginative, and the two we will feed off each other and 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 make you become a more creative
0: person. Yeah. Certainly, you know, one of my favorite sayings is that good players play where the ball is. Great players yeah. play where the ball is going to be. So I think mm. in pursuit of future problems, sure they may not be the problems of today, but uh, they are the problems of the future. And if we can proactively think of solutions or explore ways to address those problems. I think it's better for us as a society in general. So quite exciting to hear that. You know, I want to conclude with open questions for you. One, you know, what are some exciting developments or future directions that you see um, in your research uh, that you're currently working on or that you're excited about exploring? I think you you mentioned some things around education. I think you also mentioned some things around the excitement of you know these large models um, but are there any exciting developments or future directions that are keeping you up at night, uh, so to yep. say?
1: Well, so I often think of my work as you know, a two sort of paradigm. One is about bio becoming digital. And another one is about digital becoming biology. What I mean is that as some of the projects in space exploration really show that we can really program biological uh, machine, like how we program digital machine. And this is about synthetic biology. How can we program bacteria and things that are on the human body itself to become like a digital um, mini mini microcomputer on the human body, right? And the other area is about how do we start to Reimagine digital system as a biological system. So start to look at, you know, these large language model, not just as computational system, but, you know, similar to like a biological neural network. Like we need to understand, you know, how the AI work in the same way that we need to understand how the brain work and the complexity of the AI system today, I would argue is kind of getting closer to the level of, you know, human brain complexity. And, And we don't have tools to really study, you know, either the human Brains and, and AI model at the resolution that we need to really, you know, fully understand what's going on. You know, the, the work on explainable AI is, you know, emerging, but, you know, we need more work of that kind, especially on large model, uh, model that are very um, um, stochastic and model that are very uh, complex in nature. So, um, yeah, we need to really learn from biology using bio. Um, to create new kind of digital and using new digital to create new kind of biology I think it's a, it's a it's a puzzling idea, but um I think it will really open up the way that we think about computing of the future and Of course, for me, I think one of the themes that you know we we discuss is you know is that technology itself is is neither good nor bad it 's about how we really deploy it, and the way that we interface technology with human is not something that we can take for granted it 's all by design. My advisor, uh, say that you cannot just make an awesome AI and, and expect that when you drop it to a human population, they will be able to use it immediately and use it in the right way right away. You need to really think about how these two can co-evolve with one another. It's also this. This is also a very biological concept, like how two systems co-evolve with one another. So the interface itself is really important. The media philosopher really said that the medium is the message, right? So when we work on this awesome or or exciting new technology, the interface, how it connects with people is really something that we need to pay attention and design for. So we talk about large language model and uh, and many large AI models. They are really awesome and and have many benefits, but that benefit will not happen if we just think about that system alone Without considering the human psychology, without considering how the human would over rely on it or, you know, how, how we can really design to, to promote creative use and critical use of that technology is not going to happen because of the system. It need to happen by design. So we need to pay attention to that. So I think oh, these certainly. two areas, thinking about bio becoming digital, digital becoming biology and thinking about how we um, create system or AI system that co-evolve with human in the longer run, in the longer term, um, things that i think a lot about
0: oh yeah as as we continue to see technology being so widely adopted in every aspect of our lives and you know especially with the emergence or at least the growing emergence of ai technologies i think exploring both research paths i think is very important and i think uh, as long as we have folks like you who are thinking hard about these kinds of problems or hopefully we have more i think we're we're all in good hands So one final question I want to ask, you know, for those uh, in the younger generation who might be interested in the field of computing, what advice would you provide? And one thing I specifically want to ask about is it seems like you've been able to balance, you know, your passion for science with some of your interests in art and entrepreneurship, so how would you uh, advise those who are looking to balance some of their scientific interests with their, you know, pa- passions, whether it be art or music or sports, yeah. to best channel and, and, and fuse those interests together as much as possible?
1: Right. And dinosaurs as well. Yeah. And I dinosaurs, think, of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, to me, what I've learned and, and seen at the Media Lab is the, the celebration of diversity and diversity in broadest sense possible, like, you see a lot of interesting and and weird people um, at the lab, and they all really really show their their unique perspective and unique appreciation of of things. And I think that you know would lead to a, a creative community when people can really bring what they're passionate about to their work, and that passion will spark ideas and, and imagination in other people. So that kind of energy is really important. So not to kind of constrain yourself to becoming a kind of flat dimension or a one-dimensional person, but really celebrate who you are as a human being. If you love dinosaur, then go for it and bring that to your ideas and, and, and creativity. So um, yeah, that, that, I think that's really important. And one thing for me that I think is also really important is to sort of think about, you know, what kind of impact that you want to have in the future. Um, one of the media lab professor, you probably know, uh, Professor Hiroshi Ishii, always asked all his student and auto media lab student, like, what kind of impact would you have 200 years after you die? And I, of course, don't have the, the, the answer immediately, but it's something to think about, you know, to have like a, a bigger question or something that it's, it's bigger than life to think about it, whether it's a philosophical question or things that that you know make you don't just stuck in in the moment but you know be more transcended in, in terms of your your thinking. I think that's also really um, powerful. And I think finally to embrace all the complexity of the world, like you know we are living in the era where technology is moving at such a rapid rate, and we need thinking from all kinds of thinking, not just scientific thinking, but artistic thinking and all kinds of of creative uh, methodology to really help us understand how we're going to live in the future. And it's not just about dystopia and it's not just about utopia, it's about the mix of all the good and the bad and the negative and the positive. So um, exploring all the spectrum with you know, embrace all the complexity and all the possibility ways uh, and and, and ways to to understand it. I think that's the way of of the future. People often ask me like, oh, am I going to be replaced by AI or am I going to be replaced by robot? And I think what is really powerful is to think about you know, we talked about this earlier about education, right? To not think about technology just as tool that replace human, but things that can really allow us to think of things that we never thought of before, the augmentation, the idea of cyborg becoming more human than ever. Children of the future will definitely experience this more. You know, they should not be afraid of it. They should, you know, think critically about it, but then at the end think about what can we invent to really, you know, uplift humanity? One of my friends has said that to imagine a dystopia is easy. It's, imag- it's easy to imagine how the world to end, in many ways, could be alien attack, climate change, whatever. It's easy to imagine the dystopia, but to really imagine how we're going to make it, how we're going to really turn the scenario around, that is the challenge that we as a researcher, scientist, artist, designer, engineer, whatever we are, as a person of the future need to really think about be optimistic, but also critical at the same time
0: with people like you, the future is bright. Uh, And I've certainly taken good notes on some of the advice that you've shared. So, you know, I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, I look forward to seeing many of the great contributions you uh, will have and will continue to have in the the long future. So thanks so much for joining us on uh, Bytecast, and uh, look forward to keeping in touch.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: ACM ByteCast is a production of the Association for Computing Machinery's Practitioner Board. To learn more about ACM and its activities, visit acm.org. For more information about this and other episodes, please visit our website at learning.acm.org slash b-y-t-e-c-a-s-t. That's learning.acm.org slash bitecast.